In her essay titled, Don't Say Nothing, Jamila Pitts exhorts educators that teaching as an act of resistance and teaching as an act of healing are not mutually exclusive. That when teachers choose to remain silent about moments of racial tension or violence, violence that may well touch students' own communities or families, these children are overtly reminded of their inferior place in society. That engaging in dialogue about mass incarceration rates, the militarism of police, and the killing of innocent black men and women is but one antidote to systemic racism. That essay was written four years ago, in the fall of 2016, after the murders of Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Alton Sterling, and Philando Castile, and before the killings of Delron Small, Botham Jean, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. After the murder of George Floyd, Fund for Teachers reposted Jamila's article and reached out for her thoughts on what, if anything, has changed on the racial pandemic landscape since she wrote her piece in 2016. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today, we visit with Jamila Pitts, an educational consultant and equity and justice strategist whose work centers around the liberation, healing, and holistic development of youth, particularly children of color. She is also a 2017 Fund for Teachers Fellow who used her grant to partner with organizations in India to study strategies for designing and implementing human rights education curricula for poor, low-income schools and classrooms. Jamila left the classroom in 2019 to continue her anti-racist, anti-bias work as a consultant. She now partners with schools, leaders, and organizations to provide training, strategic planning, and thought leadership expertise, and also wellness and yoga practices for students and staff's self-preservation. She has served as a teacher, coach, dean of instruction, dean of students, and assistant principal, and has worked at schools in Massachusetts, New York City, the Dominican Republic, China, and India. Jamila holds degrees from Spelman College and Boston College and is pursuing an additional graduate degree from Teachers College at Columbia University. In addition to being a Fund for Teachers Fellow, she is also a Woodrow Wilson National Teaching Fellow, Donovan Urban Teaching Fellow, and a member of the Teaching Tolerance Advisory Board. Hours before 60,000 people marched in Houston in memory of and solidarity with George Floyd, our conversation began around Jamila's 2016 article in Teaching Tolerance. Four years ago when I wrote the piece, I, I was in a very different place. I don't remember which killing prompted that piece, and I often get questions about it, but I, I don't remember which one it was or who it was. The killings, they run together in my mind. That really started as like a journal entry for me. It, I don't know that it started as... I'm going to publish this piece about this thing. I just remember then, I don't think there was too much that I, I read in terms of education or like something that was targeting teachers around like, what does this mean for our work? Like, how do we respond? And when I had stopped writing, there were some other pieces shared with Teaching Tolerance. And I happened to be in conversation with one of the editors at the time. And I happened to ask her, what is being said about this? Or like, what is being shared about it? And I, I just sent that to her. Now, there really is a numbness there is a just like for me a really strong sense of feeling completely overwhelmed like what does it make sense for me to do 
And I found myself recently in the sense of like, I have to kind of just be. And one of my mantras for this season of life has been one of Audre Lorde's quotes, um, where she says that caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. A part of the way that racism has functioned in this country and still does, it is it has been literally designed to systematically kill black and brown bodies. And that happens in a number of ways, but I, I think a large part of it that's not a part of the conversation is many of us move into this mode of like, we have to do something, we have to act, but that doesn't necessarily always mean that we have to be martyrs. And so for me, resistance in the past few days has been... It's been crying, it's been writing, it's been doing nothing, it's been doing yoga, it's been sitting on the phone with my friends and not saying anything, really limiting how much I'm engaging and like taking stuff in. Like I might skim a headline, I, I don't watch the videos or like any of the footage because I just, for my being, like I cannot continue to reenact the trauma just because of what that does to my spirit. And then there are times and like moments where... Um, yeah, a lot of educators have reached out to many school leaders, like, which is really great. And they're thinking about what do we do? What do we do during this time? And so in moments where I'm able to feel like, like I can offer something, I am having conversations around like what that can look like practically um, because of what I do believe about schools and about education and how it is a vehicle. So it's been a combination of, of all of those different things. You have on your website that education should be an avenue through which empathy, healing, and justice are promoted. Mm-hmm. So when you have these schools reaching out to you, where do you even tell them to begin? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I had a conversation with a leader uh, maybe last week, and she asked the same question. And my response was, one, I don't think that there is a wrong place to begin, but I think that if schools or leaders want to think about just like a really grounding kind of starting place, it would be to have each individual start with themselves. I was just leading a workshop last week with a school in the Bronx. I actually started them in like a grounding meditation practice before we moved into more anti-racist work and we were focusing on literacy specifically. But one of the things that was really important for me to start with is just, I think that we forget how human this work is. As educators, we are people dealing with and like shaping the mind of young people. And so when I think about anti-racist work and social justice work, culturally responsive work, And education as this very transformative practice, I think it is really, really important that people begin with themselves and like really begin to become self-actualized and begin to interrogate and unpack, well, what is it that I believe? What is it that I believe about the world? What is it that I believe about this work? What is it that I believe about my students, especially if you are teaching black and brown students? And especially in a time like now, starting there around like, what are your biases? What are your beliefs? What are you carrying to the work? What drives, what has allowed you to begin in this profession in the first place? I mean, when I think about systems of oppression, they didn't just exist. People have created them and people have sustained them. People have perpetuated them. And so the work really has to begin with that human aspect of who am I and like, what do I believe about people and about the world? Jamila, how can one do that individually, though? That makes perfect sense that it begins with ourselves and looking at ourselves. But so often we're so blind to what our biases are because of our environment, our upbringing, our heritage, our histories. So how would you advise someone listening to this and wanting to start this work and say, how do I do that? The English teacher in me, I would say a great starting point, I think, is books. 
I don't separate literature from this work. In fact, whenever I'm leading a workshop or like a professional development piece or even a conversation or like a coaching session, I'm always grounding it in some sort of text. It might be a quote or it might be something like James Baldwin's A Talk to Teachers. It might be a passage from Bettina Loves, We Want to Do More Than Than Survive. I think the beautiful thing about books is it's really about philosophies and ideas and practices and history. And I think that if you are someone who is unaware or even just beginning with like language, like what is an implicit bias? Like, yes, people talk about race, but to really understand how races function, like where do you begin in terms of understanding that? I think books is a really, really great place to start. I think that depending on what city you're in, um, many urban cities have a lot of organizations that are training people around what it means to be racist. And so that is a great starting point because if you're if you're not having a conversation with or if you're not and I, I think books and reading is very much a conversation you are reading but there is a dialogue that's happening between like your thoughts and the thoughts that are on the page I think that that's a really great place to start I mean even now there are, there are documentaries I mean I, I think documentaries and like certain like music I think that's a text it's a form of reading but starting with something that's going to open your mind to something that is different than like what you might have already been conditioned to believe. I think that, and historically, right, literacy has played a really large part in liberation and in being able to dismantle forms of oppression, particularly race. And so I think that books are a really great place to start. Jamila recommends a few go-to books for people interested in learning more about anti-racist, anti-bias work, including Anything by James Baldwin or Audre Lorde, Lisa Del Pitt's Multiplication is for White People, Bettina Love's We Want to Do More Than Survive, Bell Hook's Teaching to Transgress, Christopher Emden's For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too, Zaretta Hammond's Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, and Gloria Ladson Billings' The Dream Keepers. Jamila also tends to return to female black and brown authors as they have experienced multiple forms of oppression and therefore offer solutions that are fuller and more robust. We're learning from Jamila Pitts, 2017 Fund for Teachers Fellow and founder of Jamila Pitts Consulting, where she draws upon her experience and passion to advocate for and advance work around the liberation, healing, and holistic development of youth, particularly children of color, through an emphasis on adult and educator development, coaching, and training. I'm going to go back a little bit. You used a Fund for Teachers Fellowship to pursue Amnesty International teachings in India. How did you decide in 2017 to craft that particular fellowship to enhance your work? That is a really great question. I took a course through Facing History and Ourselves uh, around human rights education and using um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, these are things that I've always been interested in. Teaching for me has never been apolitical, never. I always understood the role that education can play. It is either used to perpetuate oppression or it is used to dismantle it in some capacity. And so for me, I knew that I wanted the work to be centered around human rights, social justice, anti-racist work. So I was thinking about how do I pull from an experience or pull from a body of work that is going to enhance what I'm able to do in the classroom with my students. India is a place that it 
called to me for a really long time for a number of reasons. But even when I was there and I was visiting schools, working with teachers and working with students, I would always get that question around like, yep, we completely understand this work. Why did you choose India? India is known for this really rich culture, just really beautiful spiritual practices that we have certainly adopted here in the West. It is also one of the world's largest democracies, but it is a place in the world where so much injustice and the lack of human rights is situated. I'm also really passionate about girls' education and, and women's rights. And so just thinking about the oppression of women and girls in a place like India, and certainly not only in India, but also thinking about like discrimination based on the caste system, discrimination based on skin color. It was the contrast to me that was really appealing. But then to also learn about Amnesty International and their work. And there was a professor that one of my graduate school professors introduced me to. And a lot of her work is around human rights education specifically. Um, and she did spend a lot of time in India as well. And so I kind of wanted to like follow that. And I wanted to be able to choose a place where I would be able to demonstrate like here, yes, curriculum and like teaching is really, really important and impactful and can transform a community, can transform a society. It is possible to do that. Teaching have that power and that strength. And it just depends on how we decide to approach the work. What was a main theme that you brought back from that time in India that you interjected into your school in Harlem and your curriculum? So there were, there were some practical tools just around how different organizations and different schools implemented human rights education. But for me, it also was just like the belief that this, this work can be really disheartening sometimes. It can be really, really discouraging because you will feel like as a teacher or as an educator, especially when you are someone who is conscious and you're very critical about the world that you, that you live in and you are seeking to teach your students to do the same and to actively resist and to push against um, and whatever ways, you know, makes sense for them, it can really feel like you're not doing it enough, you're not being impactful, and that th no change is happening, especially now, right? Like, I, I keep thinking, like, I wrote that piece four years ago, and look at where we, like, why, this is still constantly being shared, it's still happening, despite the fact that many of us are working. And so a part of what I brought back was just this idea that it is impactful. I remember taking a course on human rights and they were saying sometimes like it takes a generation, like an entire generation to be able to change some of these things. And for some people, they may not see it in their lifetime, but it is possible to transform a community through education. It is possible, you know, to shift policy policies to disrupt a lot of what is happening in our world and our society and our communities through what you are teaching and like what you are placing in front of children. Children are really, really impactful. And when I think about the number of students that a teacher is able to come into contact with over the course or the duration of their year, like that is really, really powerful. If you are intentional about the types of questions that you ask your students, if you are intentional about the types of texts that you have them read, if you are intentional about inciting them in some way, if you are intentional about being a teacher activist, if you are intentional about embedding anti-racist practices, not even embedding them, but making that the foundation for the work that you are doing, it is impactful. And it was really encouraging to see that in India, to hear the stories, to see the work, and to know that like, yeah, the, com the entire landscape of the country has not changed. No, but there has been an impact. And like, that is really, really important and powerful. Have you seen since then, 
that needle move, Jamila? Because I do think the article that you wrote in 2016, it's still painfully relevant today. In that gap of time, what have you seen or have you seen anything shift? I know it's glacial and it may not have happened yet. Just as you said, it's in a generation, but has, has there been any type of seed of encouragement that something is changing? I, I'll give you an example. I heard, I think it was on NPR that for several days, books on anti-racism were sold out. And someone on social media said, maybe that's one positive thing that I can hold on to today is that for the first time, these books on this topic are sold out. Is there anything that you, that you latch on to and you can say, I'm seeing something? One of the things that's, that's coming to my mind as you, as you ask that question is whenever I would speak to my students around whether it was some type of assignment or something that they were going to do around social justice or around some sort of project, I would often ask them this question around if they felt powerful or if they felt like they had the ability to change something or to change whatever it is that we were talking about, whether it was disparities, healthcare, or if it was police brutality or domestic violence or whatever, just the wide range of issues may have been. And often my students felt really powerless. Like no one is hearing us. What is the point of this mess? Like, why are we doing this? But I think what's really important to know, and I, I do see and I do know, is that Black people historically have always resisted. I think that wheels are always turning. I think that work is always happening. And I know for a fact that when I think about my community specifically, like resistance is always happening. We have always been people who resisted. We have always been people who pushed back from the transatlantic slave trade to people who decided to choose death over a life in bondage to slave revolts and rebellions. The work is always happening. And with that, a shift is always happening. And that shift might be what you are embedding into your children, what you are teaching your grandchildren, knowing that you may not necessarily see that change, but you are planting a seed in your child where they may be able to, or their grandchild may be able to. And the moments when I am able to interact with social media, yes, people are reading more. Yes, people are engaging in dialogue more. Yes, there are more people taking to the streets to protest. Yes, there are people who are shifting their mindset around what a riot is and historically how riots have been mislabeled and the myths around why people riot. And so that discourse is happening. And then there is action happening behind it. I think about the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I, I wrote a, a few pieces around that as well. And just like the way that it functions and it being more than a protest and like understanding like the role that legislation plays. I see conversations around just like economic power. And I think it's really important that when teachers are teaching the civil rights movement, yes, uh, Rosa Parks did not get up, give up her seat, but also teaching like there was like a whole piece of that that is often not taught, you know, understanding how like in a capitalistic society, when we are really trying to move the needle, paying attention to where the black dollar is spent. And so, yes, there are a lot of conversations around, now around withdrawing economic power. And certainly with something like that, you will see a shift. And so, yes, I think in the, the position that I'm in, I can feel numb, but I can also not feel discouraged simultaneously. I, I don't think that all of these things have, it doesn't all have to be mutually exclusive. I do see shifts. And I think that the work that I'm in, like I, like I have to know that it is like, and also I know that we are people who have always resisted. And so I know that that is still happening even now. Who planted these seeds in you, Jamila, when you talk about how generations will plant seeds? Who did that for you? 
So I'm a first generation college student, but I am not the first person in my family to have a critical or conscious mind. Although my mom didn't go to college, she was always someone who had the news on, always reading different things, reading the newspaper and developing an awareness of what was happening in her world and like developing a critical reading of that, even if she did not necessarily have the collegiate kind of like experience and language to be able to do that. I think about hearing like my dad playing Bob Marley's music and like talking about that. I just remember, I mean, for many people of color, like we come from traditions or like histories that are rooted in storytelling. And so just like hearing a lot of different stories. I mean, my grandmother, it's so interesting. I live in, I live in Harlem right now. My grandmother was actually born in Georgia, but if you know, in terms of like understanding history, a part of her mother moving her, that would have been a part of the great migration. And so like, that was a form of resistance. We are absolutely not staying here. We are not going to stay here and subject ourselves to that. And so for me, decades later, to live here and to, and to do this work, thinking about her stories, thinking about uh, like my grandmother didn't even uh, graduate high school. And so to think about even just like the way that she lived her life, that was planting a seed seeing other black people, particularly other black women be free, like that is planting a seed. Um, and that's why, you know, I think it's really important, especially around black women and black women who dare to be vocal and who dare to push back. Society is often thought to call us angry or, or sought to silence us in so many different ways. But I think that that is planting a seed for a young black girl to see her mother operate in a certain way or refuse to operate in a certain way. That is planting a seed. I had really amazing teachers. I did not have a white teacher until I was in fifth grade. So all of my teachers prior to that point were black women. And I was in a school setting where, I mean, that was a large part of the work. Even if people didn't have the, the language that we're using today, like that is what they were doing. They were planting seeds. They were teaching us to push, to resist, to love ourselves, which is a form of resistance in this country. It's been a collective thing. Like I didn't get to this place just by myself. How did you end up transitioning out of the classroom and into this, this work on a broader scale? Leaving the classroom was perhaps one of the most difficult decisions that I made. There were a number of things. I don't think that urban schools for serving predominantly black and brown children do a very good job at retaining or honoring the presence of staff and of teachers who look like the children they are teaching. Certainly, I was not able to care for myself. And so when I think about doing this work, you don't have to be a martyr. It's really difficult. And I think that for a lot of Black teachers, there is an understanding that the well-being and the education of this child who looks like me, is, it is not just about this child, but it is connected to the ability for our entire community, for all of us to be able to move forward. And so it is a, that is a lot to carry. That is a lot to carry. In many schools, there was like a lack of upward mobility. And so being a Black teacher teaching Black children, but I'm not able to be in a space where I'm able to have a voice. Well, that doesn't make any sense, and that's not going to work for me. And so when I did leave the classroom, initially, I did not leave schools altogether. I moved into leadership roles. For me now, being in this space where I'm still very much doing the work with students directly or working mostly now, though, working with leaders, working with teachers, and teaching them what it means to resist, what it means to be anti-racist in their classrooms, in their schools. What are the myths that you dismantle when you go into an organizational setting or school setting and they want you to come in and do your work? What do you have to deconstruct before you can construct? 
we find that we have to do this much longer. And so I may have a principal who wants me to come in and lead a workshop. And then they find like, nope, this is like actually life work. And so we got to like really partner and dive into what this looks like on a larger scale. If I were to solely just market myself as an educational consultant, I might appeal to a larger clientele or that I might get more business. Or even if I were to say I specialize in diversity, equity, inclusion, which I have been intentional about not using that language because I don't think that diversity, equity, or inclusion are enough when we think about this work. To truly do this work, you have to be anti-racist and anti-oppression. I'm curious about the aversion to the equity, inclusion, and diversity in favor of anti-biased, anti-racist. How did you decide that the former was too impotent and the latter was the more vital? So I think in education, we get by by using a lot of trendy buzzwords. And so initially when I started my consultant work, there was a lot of attraction around just like, yes, we know that culturally responsive teaching or culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally sustaining practices that that's really important in education right now. And so help us with that. Or we know that restorative justice is like the it word right now. Help us with that. And right now it's DEI work. And I think that this country and I think that this work has often been able to kind of like dance around the root of something and graze at the surface without diving very deep. Diversity is not entirely the issue. Equity is not entirely the issue. Being inclusive is not entirely the issue. Usually when people say that, when they say DEI work, they're talking about things that deal with the issue being racism in this country. And so in order to, and this is where with, with schools, our, the partnership, we end up having to just do more work they continue to come back. It's not a quick fix. It's not just about diversifying something. It's not just about making something equitable. It's not just about making something inclusive. And that's not to say that that work is not important. It is. I just think that it's a band-aid. I think that it is not the root. It is not the illness. And I think that to truly solve something, I think that you have to get at the root. And the root of when people are talking about that work, it's racism. And so you have to understand how racism shows up, how racism perpetuates and impacts schools, you have to be able to identify that first and then that is where your work begins. It sounds really good, but it is something very different for someone to say, no, that I am working towards anti-racism. Like that's a very different, very different approach. How do you know your work is done in a school? When you go in, how can you say, you know what, my work here is done and, and you go forth and you do the work now? That is a really great question. For me, I am a teacher at heart always. And as a teacher, it is about this reciprocal learning process. And so I am not there to tell you what to do and then to leave. Like I, for the most part, I well, not right now, it's quite virtual, but I am metaphorically like on the ground with you. And I think that in the same way with my students, this is really about me taking what I have and being able to, to provide it to you, to share in the work with you, to unpack the work with you. What I will say is I never start with just like defining culturally responsive teaching. I will always start with the why. Every, now, this, now that particular part does not change. I do always start with the why, even if people believe that there is an understanding about the why, I do always start with the why, and that is always rooted in history, and it's also rooted in like how history has impacted the now, and where we now sit, and what that means for our work go going forward. And how but, would you define the why, Jamila? What What is the why? 
the history of racism in this country and it has how it has impacted and not just racism. I think that for me, it is also important to think about other, other isms and other systems of oppression. And so thinking about the root and thinking about how it manifests now so that we can then respond to it, that is the why for my work. Many of the issues that school districts, educators, nonprofit organizations that are doing this work, there is always a conversation about the issues, about the problems, a long list. And many schools do identify the same problems, issues around achievement, or they want to change their approaches to discipline, trauma, teacher turnover. A lot of the issues are the same, but what I don't often see is the time being spent to like really deal with the root. And I think that that is a part of how systems of oppression have continued to exist in this country. It's not even that people don't want to deal with the root. You have to have time to deal with the root. You have to have time to be able to dive into this work. You have to have time to be able to unpack this. You have to have time to strategically think about how to respond to this. That is also another barrier that I run into when I worked in schools doing this work. How are we still spinning the wheel and driving the car and trying to fix it simultaneously? That is a part of the intentional design to keep schools in a certain place, to keep systems of oppression operating. The people who want to be able to dismantle it don't have the time to do so. Many of the people in this country who are often on the front lines, right? I even think about people who are um, essential workers right now or, you know, first responders. I, I think about that. I think about how race and class, socioeconomic status are, are linked in our, in our country, in this capitalistic society. The people who tend to have time on their hands are people who historically have, have wealth. They have time. People who have to work constantly, who have to be able to provide for their families, who have to keep people afloat. In the time that we're living in right now, who are having to bury people and like able to keep going, where is the time for you to pause and to resist? That is costly. Thinking about people who are being arrested right now, protesting in the streets, that is costly. And so in working with schools, it, where do we carve out the time? And I think that's often why leaders will come to me Everyone else's plate is really, really full. It's not that they don't care about the work. Where are we going to have the time to do this work and deal with the one million and one things that we're being tasked with on a daily basis? I guess I might bring it back to George Floyd and the long list of names. And it's so overwhelming that I don't even really know how to ask you where we go from here. And we don't have the luxury of time when we're dealing with these immediate ramifications, pressing issues that keep pressing harder and harder. I will share what has continued to resonate with me during this time. We resist in the ways and we connect with the aspects of our truth and of our being and of our doing that makes sense for us now. What I can offer is what I can offer from just like my experience and like my seat as a black woman right now who's really, really tired and really numb in a lot of ways. And also like my resistance right now is going to be my pen, what I decide to write, how I respond and engage with other educators, continuing to support educators who are, who are seeking to do this work, you know, being willing to have conversations when I have the ability to have a conversation. In order for us to continue to do this, and it is in us to continue to push, to resist, to speak, to dance, to cry, to pray, it is to continue to do that and to know that joy, the joy of our being, the joy and the beauty of who we are, that should not be overshadowed by our pain. 
We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from almost 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you, FFT fellow Jamila Pitts, for sharing with us about her advocacy for the liberation, healing, and holistic development of black and brown children. Learn more about her work at jamilapitts.com and read her essays at teachingtolerance.com. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning. <laughs>